Good morning. Our scripture text is from 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's begin with some prayer. Dearest Lord, we, as a body, as, as the body of your Son here on this earth, God, we come to you for the living word. And we place ourselves under that word, God, and we look into it, we peer into it so that we might see you. I pray, dearest God, that you would reveal yourself to us. And that you would lift up your Son and let us delight in Him and see Him in all of His beauty in a way that we have never seen before. Heavenly Father, this is our plea and this is our prayer. Amen. October 16th, 1555, Hugh Latimer was 70 years old. And he was called to give an account for his faith to a queen who was named Bloody Mary. And so he goes. And he has his partner with him, Bishop Ridley, who was a, a monumental man of God. He actually would, he would wake up at 2 a.m. Some of you guys go to bed at 2 a.m. He was waking up at 2 a.m for his studies and for his time of prayer and devotion, to make sure he had enough time before the face of God before he became before the face of men. And this, this Bishop Ridley made them one mistake of supporting Lady Jane Grey and her ascension back up to the throne. And as, as some of you might know, she was Queen of England for about nine days or so before she was killed for her faith giving the, the, the throne then to her half-sister, Bloody Mary. So these men are called to give an account for their faith, and it's not long before the fires were also summoned, and they're shackled, tied to the stakes, and the fires are raging around them and consuming them. And here is this 70-year-old man, Hugh Latimer, while he's on fire, 
proclaiming to his partner, and he says, Be of good comfort and cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle that by God's grace it shall never go out in England. The poor man's on fire. Did I mention that? He's on fire for his faith. And he's proclaiming out, Be of good comfort. Be of good cheer, Master Ridley. And play the man. What is it with these, with these Christians? What's wrong with them? They're, they're, it seems as though they have their greatest joy coming out of them when everything around them couldn't be going any worse. That's what you see here in our text this morning. So what are we going to be doing? What are we going to be driving at with our text that, that Jeff has read to us? We're going to be seeing that we must rejoice. It's not just that. We must rejoice in the work of God. There's nothing else to rejoice in. What other fountain do you have? What other bedrock are you going to build your life upon? No, you must rejoice and rejoice in the work of God. So verses 3 to 5, we're going to take a look at it and say, well, what is this Word of God that we are to be rejoicing in? And then finally, verses 6 through 9 here as we wrap it up. We're going to be seeing how you can rejoice, but rejoice in any season. Whatever God brings into your life. Let's, let's go back to the text then here. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. You see it here, the heart of Peter is, is laid bare before us. The first things that come flowing out onto the page here. Blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and there, there's, it's translated the same way, but it's an entirely different word than what you see in the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it, that's like happy is what there's referring to in, in uh, Matthew 5 and you'll see it other places. Here... This is not coming from like a secular Greek background. No, no, no. This is straight, just pulled right out of the well of the Old Testament where you see the blessings and the curses going on and how Abraham himself will be blessed. And then you go to the New Testament and you see that this is only referred to God. It's only proclaimed to God. See, Zechariah, the, the father of John the Baptist, is, is proclaiming this in his, his beautiful song when he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. And then the high priest during the, the trial of Jesus, they ask Him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? I hope these are your first thoughts 
when you have a, a tabula rasa, a blank page before you. I hope these are your first thoughts and inclinations. Perhaps when you wake up, I hope these are your first thoughts and inclinations, is that your, your heart is resounding and directing towards this glorious God who is to be praised and blessed. Luther writes it this way. He says, God is praised in Himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally praised and blessed in Himself. And he writes, but we pray here that He may be praised and blessed among us. Not only in and amongst themselves, but in and amongst us as well. So that, let's go back to the text and see why he is to be praised and blessed and adored. And, and Peter, or, uh, Paul, Peter, goes on and he says, well, according to his great mercy, so it's prefaced before he really jumps in and says, this is what God has done to redeem his people. All of this is built upon his great mercy. Nothing more, nothing less. Nothing you can do. Which is good. If you want to work hard and redeem it, well, there's nothing you can do to lose it as well. So all of this that you will see flowing throughout the rest of this glorious letter that has shaped the church for thousands of years. Why? According to His great mercy. So what is He doing? Well, He's, he's called us to be born again. And, and you give some prepositions to kind of structure his what's going on here. So we are born again to a living hope, and a living hope to an inheritance. So we're going to look at these: born again to a living hope to an inheritance. So we are we are born again, which is wonderful. Why? First time it didn't go so well, quite frankly. Yes, you were born and you came out screaming. But you came out screaming in your own sin. We are children of our parents who are children of their parents or the children of their parents all the way go back to Adam and Eve. We are born in our sin and horribly lost to our own desires. Paul writes it this way. He said that, that we are having no hope without God in this world. We have no hope. And apart from Christ, we have no to redeem us. So, according to His mercy, He has called us to, to be born again to a living hope. And what's the mechanism there? Do you, do you see this? The end of verse 3. Look down. What's the mechanism that, Christ, that, that God is doing this through? It's the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. What a joy then to, to have all of your hope, this, this living hope to be built upon something outside of us. What a delight it is. What a, conversely, what a life of worry and doubt we have when we try to build it upon our own goodness, upon our own godliness, upon our own ability to conquer death. And how often is the Christian plagued with, with doubts or worry or, anx or anxiety? And I would say that it's, it's this great dichotomy right here. 
That rather than building it upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are trying to build it upon ourselves. And so then when we see our own sin, well, yeah, then we begin to doubt. It's the natural consequence is what it is. Contrast that to the resurrection, which is sure that has happened. It is, in fact, the center point of all, all of history is built upon this. And here, the greatest enemy, death, is put away. Now, imagine it the other way. If we didn't have the resurrection of Christ, the, the, the Marys, they go with their, their, uh, their frankincense, incense, and myrrh, whatever they have, and their spices, and they go to the tomb, and there's an angel there, and they said, where have they placed the body of our, of our Jesus, of our Lord? What have he said? Oh, well, he's right in here. They put him here three days ago. He's still right in there, right? He's been in here three days. He's starting to smell, and I have a feeling he's going to be here for quite a bit longer. You would have no hope whatsoever. It would be the same thing as if you were trying to build it upon yourself. Because you're going to die. You and you have nothing. And you have nothing outside of the resurrection of Christ. And as long as that tomb is empty, then you are filled. And you are filled with a living hope. And we must respond. We must respond to this empty tomb. Remember that we are made to worship. We are made to worship. The earth and all of the trees and all of the stars and all of the fish, they all declare the glory of God. You too are made to worship. There's two things. Either you're going to worship God as the Creator and Sovereign Lord who loves you and cares for you, or you will turn inward and worship yourself. And so we must respond to this. What what shall we do with this empty tomb? What shall we do? Well, the, the Bible makes it very clear that Christ died for our sins, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, according to Scripture. And so we must either accept this to be true and submit our lives to Him. To do anything short of that is open rebellion against the King. And we think, oh, I'll just be ambivalent. I'll just put it in neutral. I don't really, I don't care. I'm just here because I was told to be here. Or my parents bring me here. One or the other. To be neutral is to be in open rebellion against God. We must, we must choose whom we will worship. So we have been, according to His great mercy, been born again to a living hope. The mechanism again is through the resurrection of Christ. Through His life we have a living hope. And this is our, our, our current hope. You, you see how this, this carries along, us along in, in the present time. This is our current living hope. But we are also called to an inheritance. 
that Peter writes about, which is in our future. And he's going to, Peter is calling us in the most fascinating way. He is calling you to live as though the future is already here. Same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Christ proclaims the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It has come. And so what do we do in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, we live as though we will live in the new heavens and the new earth here at this time. In the midst of this broken, shattered, dark world, we live as though the new heavens and the new earth are here. And that is the kingdom of God coming down to us. So Peter is calling them to live in such a way that they are living out their inheritance that they will have in the new heavens and the new earth. This, this, this inheritance that it's glorious, it's, it's imperishable, undefiled, and fading, and it's kept in heaven for you. And, and he's making it clear with this inheritance that is to come that we are supposed to live as though we have it now. It's not like the promised land that they had back in the Old Testament. Remember the the promised land that they had was not imperishable. They had it for a while. 586 came, and they no longer had it. And the people of God were carried off into exile. But here we, we see that this inheritance of, will not end. It will not end, my friend, as we are before God, face to face, as His glories are just washed over us, wave after wave, as we proclaim His goodness and His love. So this this inheritance is imperishable. It's undefiled. Unlike in the promised land where it didn't take long at all. I mean, they were hardly out of Egypt before they're making golden calves. They didn't even get to the promised land and they're defiling themselves and defiling the land. And they carry on with their, their worship of foreign gods rather than the worship of the one true God. But this inheritance that we have will not be like that. There will not be anyone to pollute to pollute them, for they will all be washed clean. They will all be washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. And as we live out the future in the present, that's why we strive and we long to maintain a church that is pure. If our inheritance is is imperishable, and if our inheritance is undefiable, then we must live as that right now in the current as well. But it goes on, and it's, it's unfading as well. Throughout all of eternity, not one glimmer of God's glory will begin to wane. Not one glimmer of His love will begin to diminish. Throughout all, all of eternity, time will be gone. And God will sustain you forever. And ever. And all of this is being kept in heaven for you. 
Unless you are going through these current persecutions, Peter would write. Unless you be afraid that you might lose all of this, well then, no, 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 don't fear not. For it is the very power of God that is guarding you, that is keeping you through faith. And will bring you to your ultimate salvation that will be revealed in the last time. So we look here in these verses 3 to 5 here, and we see the unfolding work of God. And you, and you look at them. And ask yourself, what, what, have, what have you done? It's actually a question posed to me many times in my youth. My parents would go, what have you done? You know, I, I wish I had these verses and I would show them and I would go, look here, I've done nothing. I've done absolutely nothing. It's right there. But no, that was too sinful. All of this, all of this is because of God's great mercy. You and I, all of us, or the whole world, dead in our sins. That's how we came into the world, living but dead. But we have a new, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ because of that tomb that is empty. We are called also this inheritance, not left to wander our 70 years here on this earth, wondering what might happen, but no, we have a glorious inheritance awaiting us. So all of this is is the work of God. What then should we do? Right? How, How should we live in response to this glorious truth of God? Let's go back here to the text. Verses 6 through nine. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse eight. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So notice what's happening here in these first couple words of verse 6 here. Paul is not, or Peter is not commanding them to do something that they're not doing. Do you notice that? Look in verse 6. He's commending them. In this you rejoice. It's ongoing. In this you rejoice. And so they're rejoicing even, even though there's this persecution going on around them. And see the root. The first few words, what is the root of their, of their rejoicing in this? Referring back to the previous verses of verse 3 to 5. All of this glorious work of God that He has done to save them, to redeem them, to call them, and to bring them home to their glorious inheritance. It's in this that we rejoice. So the, the root of our joy, of the Christian joy, is the work of God. 
It's the, that's the bedrock upon which you can build your whole life and not have to worry about it crumbling down. You'll be told to, to build it upon your careers, upon your retirement, upon your social status. It's just a lie from the pit of hell. And we believe it so readily. How many, how many men and women have you seen in your own lives, perhaps yourself? I see it in my own family. Hard times hit and they are stripped of every bit of joy in their lives. When it's taken away, they have nothing. They have nothing. When they thought they were prosperous, well then they were happy. That's taken away and they have no enduring joy. Well, how else could these these men and these women continue to rejoice in God. There is no other way. There is no other hand that they could place their hearts into and be carried along and be kept safe. Then carried along they must be. Think about it. This, this is written. There's Jews and Gentiles, primarily Gentiles, in, in these churches. And what's going on is... if Okay, so if you're Jewish, they know you're different, Right? Dress differently, eat differently, speak in a different language than everybody else. Okay, the Jewish people, they're different. This is a predominantly Gentile church, though. So these Christians are trying to figure out, how do I live this new Christian life in the same old setting? It's these same Christians who were once worshipping the false gods. And now they are no longer doing it. Perhaps you, you've seen this in your own life. Your friends keep calling you and go, well, come on. What do you mean you don't want to go drinking? You used to drink more than all of us. Oh, come on. Come on, Matt. You know we can fudge the numbers. Well, come on. We've, we've been fudging the numbers for taxes for years and years and years. And now you're going to tell me that we can't? Oh, it's not this religion thing, is it? Is this that Jesus Christ that you keep talking about? Now I'm guilty for you, me doing the same thing that you used to do, and now I'm the guilty one. That's where your religion has got you. Well, you can see why they're persecuted. They've never been separate. They've been in the world and they remained in the world in these muddy waters that they're they're trying to navigate themselves through. So you look back here. Go to verse 7. So if necessary, they've been grieved by these trials, these, these various trials. And then we have these two words, so that. And they can rejoice. As they, as they read this letter, they can rejoice that all of this is not without purpose. It's not as though God has lost control or anything like that. All of this is so that the tested genuineness of their faith may be, bringing, may be brought to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the same faith that is being guarded is guarding them through God's power. 
So they have a purpose in their suffering. But what's also happening is that you see there's a purification as well that's going on. God is allowing or directing these circumstances, this suffering within their lives to purify them. To burn away any false hope that they might have that will only lead them to death and despair. This persecution, what a blessing. It's taking it away. It's burning it away. What a blessing for them. And that's the same thing that is happening to you. We, we were wrestling with this when we were, our community group was going through the book of James and trying to reconcile this. Okay, so we're not persecuted for our faith. None of you have been beheaded for your faith. We're not being persecuted. But God is bringing suffering into our lives. And so you see that the suffering, the persecution was the mechanism, it was the means by which God was bringing suffering into their lives. For them, it was, it was persecution from the state. And for you, it might be cancer. Or it might be losing your job. You have nothing. Or maybe it's that you're married. And in the midst of that, you still feel as actually lonely than you were before you were married. God is bringing this into our lives. So if it's cancer or if it's soldiers, it's still from the hand of God. So all of this does apply to us. So this, this refining is compared then to gold, which is a precious commodity. And man, they will go to great lengths to show how pure it is and to make it more pure. And how do they do it? Well, through fire. It burns everything else away. And this, this, this commodity that we esteem as being so precious that won't endure through the end. It gets lost. It gets worn away. How much more than can we expect these trials in our lives to purify our faith, my friends? To purify our faith. So the fire is coming. God will bring it into your life. This, this purifying fire that, that has a purpose and to purify, it will come into your life. And either your faith is going to be burned away which declares that it was never true in the first place. Or, you will be more pure. You will be more like Christ, who is perfected through His suffering. So, in the most astounding way, how does the Christian approach his suffering? Well, we rejoice, as he says, we rejoice not only in, in the midst of suffering, but conversely, we somehow rejoice because of the suffering. How many, in your own life, as you think about it through your suffering, we've had so many conversations with you. I know your stories. 
If you hear your suffering, and you know there was the closest to God that you've ever been, is in the midst of that suffering. So take heart, friends. Your suffering has a purpose. That your faith, which is far more precious than your life or anything in it, might be purified and made pure. And you may be prepared to bring praise and glory and honor to Christ at His revelation. And even though we don't see Him now, this Christ, even though we don't see Him, we haven't seen Him, we believe in Him. The suffering, that's what we see. That's constantly. Turn on the news, whatever it is, whatever medium it is. You see this constant suffering in the world. That's what we see. This Christ, we haven't seen Him. We don't yet now see Him. But we believe in Him. And we rejoice with joy that is that's inexpressible, really. It's inexpressible. And it's filled with glory. That's how we respond to this all-consuming glory of God. Look, look at the example of Adam and Eve to see why there is purpose and reason in your suffering. Adam and Eve created, placed in this garden. Everything's good. It was very good. And sin enters, where, enters in because it was always the eternal plan of God to redeem His people through Jesus Christ. And He can't redeem them in the garden. They must be outside of the garden to be redeemed. So somehow in the cosmic plan of God that I don't think mere mortal men should peer into, between God's eternal decree to redeem people through Jesus Christ, Adam and Eve take the fruit and they eat. Corruption, sin, and suffering comes into the world and it consumes the world. It's the same suffering that often will envelop your life as well. But through this suffering, they are given a promise of the Messiah to come. Through this suffering, they see this Messiah who will bring them grace and mercy and love and forgiveness in a way that they would have never known had they remained in the garden. But no, this is part of God's eternal plan to redeem a people for Himself. So as you are leaving the garden, do not lose sight of this as you begin to toil in the thistles and work amongst the thorns. Do not lose sight of God's purpose, of His eternal plan to redeem all things and sum up all things and unite all things in Christ. For formerly, they were temporarily, they were, they were naked in the garden. It was temporary. But now, they are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And they will be 
forever and ever. This was accomplished through suffering. Because they are cast out of the garden. We don't often see the, the value in these various trials that are refining our faith. You think Adam and Eve saw it? They had a little glimmer, maybe. A little, a little hope that they were, that the seed of the woman would come and crush the seed of the serpent. They had that, that little bit. But as they're going out, and for the rest of their lives, tilling, toiling away, you think they see it? No. In the same way, it's so hard for us to see it as well. We, we have hope. We have, we have this word that is secure, but we look around us. We haven't seen this. We, we look around us at what we have seen. And you're telling yourself, I just, I can't go on. I can't. I can't go on. And, and then you, you hear the Spirit whispering to you, my grace sufficient for you. And we're undoubtedly grieved. As you see in verse 6, we are grieved by these various trials. But you're, you're single, and you look around, and everybody else is married. Everybody in the whole world is married, except you. That's what it feels like. Well, what do you do? You rejoice. You rejoice. There's nothing else. Or with the, the children whom you love and adore, your children want nothing to do with your God. What do you do? You rejoice. You rejoice. Your addiction that you think is behind you, put it behind you a hundred times, and it still comes up and consumes your life. What do you do in the midst of all of this? You rejoice. You rejoice. Or you're not as successful as other people in your family, and you're reminded of that, especially around the holidays, as you go to these other palatial estates. And celebrate with him. What do you do? You rejoice. Or, even if you are like my wife and I, and you're told two days ago, that the baby in her womb is a faint heartbeat. And that heartbeat will not be here a week from now. And you will endure yet another miscarriage on top of your daughter, whom you've already buried. What do you do? Your grief in the deepest pits of your heart. What do you do, though? Rejoice. You rejoice in the work of God. I will say it again, Paul writes. Rejoice. Rejoice in the finished work of God that He has caused you to be born again. 
to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading and kept in heaven for you. This is what we shall rejoice in, both now and throughout all of eternity. Let us pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, there is much grieving in our lives. But we do not mourn. This world around us, God, we have hope. And we have eternal hope in Your Son, who has been eternally raised and is in Your presence, pleading, interceding for us, that we might be eternally adopted as Your sons, God. And we long for the day that we will be fully clothed in the righteousness of Your Son. But until then, God, though we do not see Him, God, let us believe. Let us rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. God, when we are caused and brought to tempted to doubt and tempted to despair, Father, let us continually keep our eyes fixed upon You and You alone. Amen.